Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Kwai Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. I'm joined by my lovely co-host. I am Anya Crittenden, a writer at Gate Star News. And I'm Willow Bay Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. And with the three of us today is one of our regular contributors slash co-hosts, uh, one of our favorite guests on this podcast, Mike Sillingle. Hey, guys. Now based in New York City and not Washington, D.C. Our senior nerd correspondent, as uh, Willoughby just said right before we started recording this podcast. <laughs> Very flattered. It's true. Very flattered. Okay, so today, even though it is the day of the Oscars, we did an episode about that last week. So check that out if you want Oscar content. Uh, this week, we're shifting focus to um, science fiction and smart science fiction, cerebral science fiction, because a very good movie came out last week called Annihilation. Um, we've all seen it, and we all have thoughts on it. So what we're going to do first is do a general brief discussion of Annihilation, uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, uh, who previously did Ex Machina and written uh, Sunshine and 28 Days Later, and I think there was one more he did Never before, but I forget. Never let me go. Um, no, he did never let me go. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was a yeah, screenwriter he, for he it. Adapted it. Um, nice. And so he's collaborated with Danny Boyle a lot. He is now doing his own solo work because, according to reports, he doesn't like Danny Boyle very much. So he's like, <laughs> "Screw it, I'm going to do my own thing." Spilling um, the tea. <laughs> so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Annihilation, and then we're going to move into a broader discussion of what cerebral science fiction is and why we like it so much you know there's a lot of movies on that list you know that of like the 100 greatest science fiction movies of all time and they're all very like deep thought and cerebral and like out of this world so we're going to talk about that um so why don't we focus our attention on annihilation and let's go with anya what are your thoughts because you saw it first so you've had the longest time to like kind of mull it over I did, and I saw it at the red carpet premiere. I saw it with Natalie Portman in the audience Ah! and Tessa Thompson, all the fab ladies. Side note, Oscar Isaac is a very short human being. I don't (laughs) think everyone should know this. He is a tiny man. He's small. He is. He's very small. Um, (laughs) So I really loved Annihilation. Um, And... You know, the more I get away from it and the more, like, think pieces I read, there's so much to read into this film. But one of the things that I loved when I first saw it, before I had time to ruminate on it, was that I like that you can also not read into this film. Like, I like that it's also just a bonkers sci-fi film. Like, I liked watching it and just experiencing it rather than having to, like, think about it, if that makes sense. You know how, like, Arrival its theming is, like, explicit in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Annihilation, it's a bit more, like, subtextual. It's, it's very much abstract. more opaque. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I liked that, like, with Annihilation, it was sort of like a two-step process where at first it was just experiencing it and being in the wonder of it all. And then, like, weeks later, you're still sitting with it and thinking about it. And then you start, like, ruminating on what it's trying to say, if anything. Right. So, like... I, when I left the theater for that movie, I was very shook. Like, I I was like, what did I just see? And I kept thinking in my head, what does it all mean? And, yeah. you know, it's like one of those movies where you're just like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I because, like, say, it's, I mean, pretty, it's pretty straightforward, and then at the end it gets weird. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, just on, like, a 
representation note, I love that the movie is getting some flack for whitewashing, um, which we can touch on if we want. Um, but putting that aside for like a moment, I am just really appreciative of the fact that this is a movie like led by women. Um, and also the idea of like, they send in all these military people and they like can't get the job done. So I send in all these female scientists and yeah. it's like, Oh, what a concept. Um, and, and it takes them awesome. what, like two years to finally do that. I know. Right. Three years. I think also Gina Rodriguez plays a queer character named Anya. What was and your reaction just... when you saw that? <laughs> oh my God. I like screamed to myself in my seat. I was like, Oh my god, Gina Rodriguez is playing me. Gina Rodriguez is a revelation in this movie. She is just so good, and if she doesn't get a bunch of callbacks to play action heroines and uh, step into the sort of Michelle Rodriguez role. That's that's what I was thinking yeah. about. Like She could be a great antagonist for the Fast and mm-hmm. Furious franchise. I think so. Or join yeah. the and family. I like that- yeah, I love that she and Tessa Thompson almost like switched. Like you could you could see Tessa Thompson in that role, mm-hmm. but I like that Tessa Thompson was like the quieter one, yeah. and Gina Rodriguez got to play the more outspoken one because it felt right. like they were playing sort of against type almost yeah. by having those two roles. Definitely. Cool. So yeah, so I liked it. Uh, I'll go next. I'll talk about my thoughts about it. I really liked this movie. Like I was saying when Anya was talking, I left the theater shook because I just didn't know exactly what I watched. Like it went by not in a flash, but just like once the once like the ending started, I just kind of like it was kind of to me it was the when like I saw 2001: A Space Odyssey for the first time, where like shit gets weird in the third act and to the point where you're not really sure what's happening, but you know, you're feeling it like whatever emote, like it's, it's a visceral reaction to the movie. And I just remember leaving the theater kind of like stunned and then like emotionally drained because I just saw like Natalie Portman, like, I don't know how much spoilers we want to go do, but you know, like what she's doing, I've never seen Natalie Portman do in that movie before. Um, and it, Really, I love the exploration of like the unknown. Like it's kind of almost nihilistic in an approach in its approach because you don't know really like what like the entity wants, like the shimmer. You know, like you're not really sure what it what the what its goal is. Um, you know, one thing it's annihilation of, of the planet. But so not. So it's very, it's all about change and adapting and growing and evolving and becoming someone, going through trauma and becoming someone that you're not familiar with anymore. Um, and I do think it's very, very, very good. Um, I love the, it's, I think it's incredibly beautiful, uh, especially like the parts where they're in the forest and you see like plants growing with each other and it's flowers and it's very pretty and then you get animals that you've never seen before i really like the deer those were really the deer. interesting mm-hmm. those are really cool it was very miyazaki-esque um, oh you took my talking point. yeah there's a lot of that <laughs> and there's crystal trees that i think i've never seen before and i think the last 20 minutes are some of the most visually compelling sci-fi i've seen in a while um and so i really liked it uh you know, I like that there's themes that we can derive from it, but it's also a good kind of sci-fi th- psychological thriller. Um, yeah. HT or Mike, go. you guys go next. So I'm going to go first um, and say that I, I really liked Annihilation, 
but I didn't love it, which is a, a reaction that I'm really sad to say is something that I got from the movie. But it's some, it's, I think it's because Annihilation, I was expecting something like balls to the wall trippy. I expected to be enveloped in this really strange, surreal world. And it was a lot more subdued than that, which I appreciate. But it was something that I didn't, I don't think could quite envelop me as much as um, could have possibly done. But some of the the imagery in in it was really striking. And I loved that it actually went with this approach as as opposed to something that was like quite so strange. Um, So I think my initial reaction was a little bit more um, demure or subdued to it. but But as I get away from it, it's a film that has really stuck with me. And um, I've ruminated on it a lot more and it has really just kind of grown larger in my mind ever since the more I get away from it. So I think I really appreciate it for that. But for me, I think when I'm looking for a a cerebral sci-fi film like this, I really like when the messaging is more upfront, which is why I love Annihilation so much. So, uh, sorry, which is why I liked Arrival so much, uh, as opposed to Annihilation, which is almost, it's almost... um, reticent to to have any sort of um to cater to that audience it 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 almost refuses to it's kind of like this is what the film is and if you want to read something from it that's fine um but i think for me i wanted something that was like a little bit more concrete in terms of what it was trying to say when i was reading think pieces from it i really appreciated that people did get so many readings from it and i was i really was intrigued by those readings but it was something from that i personally didn't pick up from the film myself but there was like there were a lot of interesting ways that people took things that people took from the movie that I didn't expect and was completely different than from my reading from the movie, which is something more about I felt like it was going for something that was about the cycle of life or something like that, especially with Tessa Thompson's character. Like one of my favorite scenes in the movie was the part where she Ugh. was, um, you know, you finally see the scars on her arms and then like plants start sprouting from it mm-hmm. and i at, love that and scene. she she tells natalie portman's character um uh what was her name again um lena lena she tells lena uh Beatrice wants to face it you want to fight it but i don't want to do any of that and then she kind of she just walks off and sort of accepts her her role in this world i'm not and i really like that sort of quiet um defeat that sort of comes with it, but also something that's almost really beautiful in that it's not defeat as much as it is just accepting your place in the cycle of life. Mm -hmm. Acceptance. And Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. So I think that there are parts of it that I really liked and I wish I could have seen more of, especially with that sort of theme that we pick up from that scene. But for me, it was something that I did not expect, which I always really enjoy from a movie. It's something that just completely... Inverted my expectations, and um, I wish I was blown away a little bit more. I wish some of the imagery was a little bit more trippy and weird, but I really enjoyed it otherwise. And there's a lot of elements that I, I, I picked. I definitely passed by me when I first saw it. So Annihilation, even though it sounds like I'm kind of <laughs> crit- criticizing it, it's it was it's a movie that I'm still grappling with even a week after seeing it, and it's something that. I think is supposed to provoke thought, even though it is incredibly um, resistant to actually forming a one coherent message. 
Awesome. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is the part where Mike talks about yeah. his... Mike, <laughs> go my, off. My weird thoughts about this. Okay, I'm going to go off. Annihilation sucked. Okay, no, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, but no, obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, I really enjoy the experience of the film. Um, I feel like all three of you have touched upon why it does work. Um, to take upon HT's main criticism, I was surprised by how quiet this movie actually was compared to a what the trailers were making it out to be because i have no idea what i was getting myself into watching this movie i had never seen the books i didn't even realize that it was a science fiction film i thought it was you know they were in a swamp because the only thing i ever seen was that they were examining an alligator (laughs) but so yeah i heard like this back and forth you know it should have been a lot more insane but i thought it was the proper amount of bonkers because it's very primal in its storytelling. So unlike, you know, yes. other cerebral science fiction, it, I mean, those are great films. Like I'm thinking, you know, Arrival and Inception where the rules of that particular universe are always explained. They're always essential to the development of the story, which is fine. You know, you could execute that in a very apt way. With Annihilation, it's mostly, you know, just taking it in and just like watching this imagery transpire. It's incredibly hallucinogenic. I just love the environmental texture. It reminded me of, you know, the old Alan Moore Swamp Thing comics and that kind of haze. Um, as HT described earlier, the creatures in this film were just, you know, inspired by some weird Miyazaki fantasy, you know, creation. Not just the deer, but also I could see some Japanese folklore in the bear. The man bear pig. The man yes. bear pig. <laughs> It's it's it reminds me of a lot of like um in Japanese folklore like the yokai the demons that are things that like steal the faces of human beings or its victims and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so it was oh, something that, that screaming was terrifying. Yeah, it's the screaming was awful. It's really beautiful and really harrowing sort of creature. Right. Yeah, so I thought I was like, wow, this is like the closest thing we'll get to, you know, live action Princess Mononoke mm-hmm. with a man bear pig. But I'm just going to touch on, you know, what was one of my low-key favorite aspects was the body horror in this movie. And it felt purposeful because usually, I mean, anyone could do body horror to like either shock or, you know, Mm -hmm. demonstrate something important. And I feel like this is obviously doing both. But what it's like demonstrating because the body horror for me, I read it as, you know, the destruction of what we know and the familiar to create something that is weirder. Um, but also at the same time, really beautiful, because when you think about, you know, the deaths in this movie and what they end up creating, Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, with the girl who kind of looks like Sienna Miller, but is totally not Sienna Miller. Oh yeah. The other, and how her death helped create man bear pig. I don't know why I keep referring to him as that, Uh, how Tessa Thompson helped create, you know, in addition to the tree people Mm -hmm. and how, uh, what's her name? from Hateful Eight. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Lee, How she (laughs) created, you know, this (laughs) thing. I can't even... A conduit. Yeah, just like pure, like, hallucinogenic energy. Mm -hmm. So that's what I kind of loved about this movie. It was like, we could take body horror, make it something so grotesque, but at the same time, it creates something beautiful and new. Plus what you've seen... Wait, who's countering me? Oh, I want to say, to counter what you're saying in that this is a very imagery-forward film, 
that's why I think that it could have been more imagery forward for me because mm-hmm. it's something that de-emphasizes the point, the whatever message Alex Garland or or this film is trying to say. And I feel like for me, I, if it could have been a little bit more unleashed. I felt like it was almost held back a little bit. I could see that. Yeah. Because, and- like, for the longest time, I was, like, trying to, you know, like Willoughby said, I was shook. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out what exactly this movie was trying to say. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I kind of like that journey of just piecing it together because I knew I enjoyed it. Yeah. But I really wanted to think about why I enjoyed it, what, you know, it was trying to convey. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's more of a satisfying exercise, like, yeah. for me personally. That makes sense. Yeah. Willoughby, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, like, not only in addition to the deaths of, like, the main characters, spoiler alert, I guess, um, <laughs> but also, like, when they go to the, um, throughout the Shimmer and they see, like, the previous, like, soldiers that went through and you see, like, what happened to them and you can see, like, how their bodies transformed and uh, changed into something different, like that one dude that was, like, plastered on the wall, that was but it wasn't disgusting. It was, it was, all it was <laughs> disgusting, but also beautiful. Um, in a weird way, um, and also like the videotapes that they saw, of, like what was happening within the inside the dude's stomach <laughs> was weird. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was it was it definitely shocked me to my core. But it also wasn't just like there for like shocking sake. It was like there's there's stuff there, right? So. I do want to mention also like um, similar to HT, although different point i'm gonna make i do have some criticisms of the film um and while i said that i appreciate that this film is led by women and i do and i love that obviously um i feel like similar to horror sci-fi can sometimes do not great things with gender um we've seen them do great things with gender we've seen them do like not great things and one of the things i really did not like about this film was the backstory with natalie portman um, oh yeah, with her having an affair, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was unnecessary. I think that storytellers sometimes rely a lot on women as uh, seductresses, or I just think that this trope specifically was unnecessary in the film. Didn't add anything, and I'm really tired of just seeing women in these positions i'm actually gonna disagree with you there anya (laughs) because well i agree that that is a common trope that is something that sci-fi relies too heavily on i think it did lean to the sort of self-destructive um her self-destructive journey and why she exactly went on the suicide mission and you start to see where the cracks between her husband and their supposedly happy marriage uh are starting to appear and it's you know it's partially it's what Ventress tells Lena partway through the film, like, you know, it's all about self-destruction is coded into our biology, into our cells, Mm -hmm. and how, you know, he goes on these missions where he never sees her, uh, and that's part of, that's on him, but also she uh, takes comfort and starts, and has an affair with another man, and that's her as well, like, they're mutually self-destructive in that way, and that's why, even though they're on the surface, their marriage is happy, this is the reason that they both go into the shimmer and it's part of that whole message of everyone's own self-destructive tendencies and how it motivates them, whether it's subconscious or not. Yeah. My roommates did the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I totally get that. I think for me, I didn't need that answer. Mm -hmm. Like I, I could have 
done with the whole idea of self-destruction and me wondering how they were self-destructing rather than me being told a woman is destroying her marriage and is uh, having an affair and is a liar. And I guess, I guess I didn't need that to have that point come across. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like it could have been done in another way, essentially not her. Another way or we didn't need to know how their marriage was self-destructing. It could have just been something that was there that we had to wonder about. And it was an unanswered question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, That was my only thing. Yeah. Like I I think that I kind of, I I lean more towards what HT was saying about it. Because I do think that I would rather have seen like reasons why they were self-destructive instead of being left to wonder because I feel like there is a lot to let to be wondered about in this movie. That's um, what I like though. I know, I know. I, I mean, there. I mean, like the whole the whole shimmer is like you know that's never explained. So it's like, oh, what does it mean? But I also like the idea of having kind of like def- definitive character traits and like like understanding where these characters are coming from and like what leads them to go into the forest and stuff. So yeah. I do appreciate the, her backstory, but Anya, I do agree that like women having affairs as backstory is a awful trope that needs to stop. I just, how many times did Alex Garland need to show us her having sex with that man? Yeah, it happened that, like, like two and that, a half times, I'm pretty sure. And that like that like slow motion of her like mm, I just didn't love that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting cuz I don't really know how I feel about Alex Garland's treatment towards female characters. I'm not really yeah. sure what, what he thinks of them in that like it's great that he has like these this strong female cast and like this female centric movie but I don't really know whether he he really likes women especially like in <laughs> thinking about Ex Machina yeah and agreed I think for me like I came away with this reading that Ex Machina was almost uh, a subversive take on the male gaze but at the same time it is quite titillating and it is quite you know s- sort of um yeah, well, titillating essentially. So it's it's <laughs> like having your cake and eating it too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like it's the same thing I think with Annihilation, where you have both aspects of that. And I'm like, I don't really know. Oh, I, I don't want to <laughs> like put him in the label is he an ally or not? But it's just like it's interesting to me because like it is that sort of double edged sword, I guess. But I think it's also a fair question because if you are going to if you're going to be a male director and you're going to consciously choose to make movies about women. I think it's a fair question to ask how you're going to depict these women and, like, the conscious choices you make. Because, mm-hmm. like, arguably with Ex Machina, like, I love the ending. Like, I love when Lisa Vikander leaves. I love that she leaves Donald Gleason to die. Mm-hmm. Like, I like I love that ending, like, as a female character, female AI. Gender's weird in that film. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> in that ending. But then also, like, with the other female AIs... It's, they're subversive, or not they're subversive. They're silent. They're, they're, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're silent, and it, it goes to that idea of like also like of course like the one that we get to see the most of is like the woman of color who at one point Lucy Vikander literally like de-skins her mm-hmm. and like wears her skin, and it. I don't like you're saying. I don't really know what Alex Garland's trying to say with that, or how he feels about women. So yeah, so I feel like there's that just level of discomfort just in general of him as a director and as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, let's use that to, to jump off into uh, our general discussion about cerebral and more heady sci-fi. Because I think uh, this will, yeah, I think this will be a fun discussion. So, 
what speaking of women in sci-fi <laughs> it hasn't been great to women actually i don't want to like start it nope. off with this but yeah it's, it's interesting no do it science fiction Time's up. is supposed to be sort of this this ideal of where society can be i guess i could say and well, a that's lot of one it part of it could be very destructive mm. yeah. oh to that too it's both an examination but also a sort of a projection of what society could be. Uh, but a lot of that doesn't involve women, apparently. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Or, like, if they try to, you know, create empowering, badass women, um, they're, it's, like, pigeonholed into, like, these... I don't want to say caricatures, because... Um, but think I'm thinking Linda Hamilton mm-hmm. and uh, Ripley from the Alien franchise. Great female characters, love them. But it's, ide- but it's obvious that James Cameron has a very specific idea of what he thinks badass women in sci-fi are. Yeah, exactly. Also, mm-hmm. also uh, Ripley, his, uh, like, infamously or famously, was originally a man, and then they cast... Um, Sigourney uh, Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, and they just didn't change the name. And they were like... They just, you know, You're Ellen didn't Ripley. do any, any, any character rework. And then, obviously, Aliens, there was more of a backstory, um, which is complicated and awkward. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, you know, I have a list of movies here that, you know, like, I want to, like, at least, you know, mention at one point. And it, if I go down the list, like, barely any of them have, a, like, a a lot of female characters and be well-written female characters. Um, like I don't even think 2001: A Space Odyssey. Ha- Sp- 2001: A Space Odyssey. Ha- they ha- there's no like female characters other than a stewardess that takes the main character from Earth to the Moon. <laughs> That's it. Um, Blade Runner is historically terrible with women. We know that. <laughs> yeah. Worst. Um, Moon. There's no female characters at all. Uh, but Moon is so good. <laughs> Moon is great. Moon is not telling a story in like it's it's te- it's telling a very specific story. I wanted to bring up Moon because I'm like speaking of Oscars that Sam Rockwell should have. Let me tell. Let me, get this, let me get this out of the way. Moon is one of my favorite movies of all time, if not one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. It there are no female characters. Um, yeah. The daughter uh, shows up for a second. I've never seen That's it. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Snowpiercer doesn't have a lot of female characters. Oh, no, I disagree with that. What are you talking oh, about? I disagree. Octavia Spencer. Yeah, and oh, also the main fe- the oh, Korean f- character who actually you know, right. survives at the end. <laughs> I, yeah, I disagree. Snowpiercer is great when it comes to like uh, is actually quite a diverse decorative. blend of well, characters. Mm-hmm. I, you know what? I just kept I just kept remembering Chris. Chris Evans. And <laughs> I mean, guy. Jamie but, Bell. Um, sure. Um, I forgot. I forgot. I knew Tilda Swinton was in the movie, but I forgot about the other characters. Um, Korean characters. <laughs> the coolest. Interstellar. True. There's like two character, two female yeah. characters. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's forget about so, that one guy. In I mean, even, I think even at Arrival, Amy Adams, I believe, is the only woman. Yeah, but she's amazing. Yeah, she's, she's the lead, and she really carries I think, it. I think that's the other thing. Is like, so we can talk about the absence of female characters in sci-fi films, but there's also a discussion to be had about like when female characters are included, how are they treated? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the thing is like in Arrival, Amy Adams is wonderful. She's complex and she's layered, and she has so many different things at once as a female character. Controversial opinion. I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> I don't like gravity 
Okay, wait. Actually, okay, I, knew okay. this, I knew this opinion. That is Quarren's weakest opinion. film. I will agree with Anya, yeah, actually. Yeah, I don't <laughs> really like Gravity. I mean, I think it's a visual triumph. I think Sandra Bullock is good in it. Mm-hmm. For me, there's too much emotional manipulation of mm. woman as mother, and therefore you should care about her. Yeah, like it's for very, me, it's very like blatant. That, my, like, yeah, my problem with that is that like I am told the only reason I need to care about Sandra Bullock getting back to Earth is because she's a mother and there's yeah. all this tragedy. Instead of it, just I guess I needed I wanted it to be more of a survival story. Like it's that's why I like The Martian in right. contrast because you don't know his family. Yeah, like I care about yeah. Matt Damon simply because like I care about human beings, and it's similar with. I mean, as as terrible as the Cloverfield Paradox was, it happens with Gugu Mbatha-Ra, too. Like, I love her, mm-hmm. but again, she's reduced to being just a mother. And not saying that's not important, mm-hmm. but I feel like a lot of times women are reduced to these things instead of being worth something on their own. Right, like, like men are allowed to be fathers, but also complicated, characters. you know, human beings mm-hmm. in these characters, whereas, like, a lot of women a lot of times in these movies are reduced to the daughter, like an in interstellar or the potential love interest, like Anne Hathaway in interstellar. Or, <laughs> or, um, or, or, wait, and, hold on. Are you telling me that Christopher Nolan doesn't treat female characters? Well, <laughs> yeah. Shocker. Like a lot of his science fiction movies, his main characters have dead wives and that's a weird trope that he keeps putting back into his he movies. Comes back to it. Um, <laughs> feel like he might have you know, something to a, say to his wife. Nolan, you're um, right, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, you know, there's a lot, and, like, even The Fountain is about Hugh Jackman trying to save his wife from cancer, played by Rachel Weisz. Like, there's a lot of reduction in sci-fi about women, and it's mainly because a lot of these sci-fi stories were written by men who don't have a concept of complicated women, you know? And I do think that we're starting to see a change in in these movies, you know, like Arrival. I think Amy Adams' character is complex and amazing, and no I, we have annihilation where you there's a plethora of female characters like there's not one white man in the movie i don't think i yeah oscar i can't isaac remember is white. any no, man there white, isn't yeah there's no uh, white man yeah because at least, it was only men only oscar, oscar isaac oscar. There's no white men no white men who have lines anyways i think the guy who yeah. gets cut up is a white man <laughs> okay um, he could take one that's for the fine. Team. so and like, even, even in like the matrix movies uh, Trinity is reduced to love interest by the end of the movie, I think. You know, she doesn't really have agency other than supporting Neo. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a lot that can be done, but I do see, you know, some really good sci-fi movies coming out now with complicated female characters. Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Which is generally, is, is essentially a Furiosa movie with the Mad Max title. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like, you know... um. It, yeah, sci-fi is very, sci-fi has a complicated history. Sci-fi um, does, but it's always there's, changing, which is good. There's still potential yeah. for democratizing that space, and that mm-hmm. lies on you know the industry actually amplifying female creators and <laughs> who know how to write. Yeah, and amplifying amplifying sci-fi creators who are willing to test the boundaries of of the genre and of of movies. And I yeah. want to talk a little bit about more about cerebral sci-fi in general and like what it does so great so first of all how would you guys define like 
this heady sci-fi? Like, how would it stand apart smart from... Sci-fi. Smart sci-fi. Smart yeah. sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be pretentious for a little bit. How would we um, set it apart from, for example, um, like Transformers? Transformers <laughs> <laughs> Anya, why don't you go first? Um, I was going to say, or even for me, Star Wars, honestly. I love it. But... Fantasy. Yeah, Star Wars is a fantasy <laughs> yeah. movie. But, like, arguably, like... Star Trek is more of the cerebral sci-fi when it comes to like those two, and I think I think for me, Especially cerebral sci-fi, yeah, is sci-fi that grapples with ideas, but I think it's specifically like realist, like realistic ideas. Like obviously, Star Wars or something grapples with ideas and has themes, but it's all very narrative, it's very hero's m- journey, fantasy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, for me, cerebral sci-fi is sci-fi that relies less on, like, explosions and more on thought as plot drivers and really kind of grappling with our existence, which can get a little scary sometimes. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's anything really that makes me kind of think, I guess, Mm -hmm. which is a very simple way of putting it, but. Go ahead. Oh, me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know we were going in turns. Okay. Um, cerebral science fiction to me means, you know, it's all very tech-heavy and, like, emphasis on the science part, but also expands our minds when it comes to our definition of humanity and our definition of science and what basically can happen. Like, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I feel like, is a classic example of the, the quote-unquote cerebral science fiction movie. It's kind of like the grandfather of all of this, um, where, you know, it's kind of, it's pure and simple in the beginning, and then it gets more complicated as 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 time goes on, and, at, at, you know, at one point, science kind of goes out the window, and it becomes fantasy, but it also rem- it remains, but it's a good leaping forward from, like, they're in a space station. They're just trying to get along. Oh, there's artificial intelligence. And oh, what's this monolith? What does this do? All of a sudden, they're in. He's being transported to like somewhere else, and then that somewhere else is about his humanity and aging and becoming a different being. That's why I compare Annihilation to 2001. I feel like there's a lot of similarities between the two, where the characters at the end of the movie are not the same people anymore, um, and science is a part of it, and it's a part of changing our our expectations of what what we can believe in when it comes to science um and i really think that uh like the smart science fiction is supposed to do that it's supposed to be a reflection on humanity either in a positive or a negative light can do both and showing that visually showing that in a on film and seeing like these seeing characters grappling with ideas and themes that they don't even know how to grapple with. I don't think the main character of 2001 ever knew what was happening, you know? So, and you get all these, you know, even in Arrival, you see a moment where Amy Adams is speaking to the aliens, and it's one of the most transcendent moments of the movie, and you're just kind of thinking to yourself, what's happening? Like, it's, it's, it's clear and present of what's happening, but also there's the deeper level of, like, what is happening? Because there's a lot of time shifting that's happening and you kind of understand exactly what these flashbacks flash forwards are and you're like oh time is a circle (laughs) and so it's very i 
kind of love the way that science fiction, especially the cerebral kind, can take our expectations of what we think and kind of kind of blow them out of the water. Which I I can understand, HT, your criticisms of Annihilation in in that you wanted more, essentially, of what it was giving you. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, essentially. I wanted them to just unleash themselves just to go balls to the wall. (laughs) And I totally get that. But I also like how in Annihilation, it goes from that batshit sequence of, like, trippy kaleidoscope shit, and then it gets more grounded. And then also, it's it, it becomes an incredibly personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of like the idea... It You know, a lot of these cerebral sci- sci-fi stories are about one person dealing with a lot of shit. Um, like, um, yeah. Moon, Altered States, The Fountain, even Ex Machina. Like, Don- Donald Gleason is dealing with a lot of shit <laughs> in that movie. Um... Uh, kind of Blade Runner, Harrison Ford's way in over his head on like what's happening in that story. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Even, uh, did I say Altered States? Yes. Yeah. Um, and The Fountain, like, we, we, I listed those movies on characters that have very little female characters because they're about, us, like, almost like a singular male character dealing with on the unexplored territory of science. Um, and I do find all of this very fascinating uh, in science fiction, like humans trying to deal with the unknown. And mm-hmm. I think that's what cerebral sci-fi does best, is when it deals with the unknown. You've taken a lot of my talking points, Willoughby. <laughs> I have nothing <laughs> even left to say. Yeah, Willoughby, you just killed it. <laughs> hey, science fiction is one of my favorite genres. I have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, cerebral sci-fi is... I feel like the science part is actually almost secondary mm-hmm. for, to supporting a story that is either a reflection of humanity or a reflection of what humanity can be. And I think actually Star Trek, what Anya was saying before, is a lo- reflective of a lot of those kind of things because it's an idea of a future of humanity and how it's a, it's diverse and progressive. and uh, a char- beautiful humanity. Yes, it is a beautiful humanity. But I also think it can be a reflection of the worst of us, too. But I think mm-hmm. the one that I get affected for most is when it is hopeful and compassionate, which is why I was so drawn to Arrival, which perfectly balances for me that human side and that more science fiction abstract side. Um, so I... Yeah, I have nothing to add from what Willoughby has said. He's <laughs> it's okay. I yeah, I like for science, cerebral science fiction. I like things that play with the concept of how we perceive uh, not only people and others, but like the passage of time too. That's something I think that a lot a lot of cerebral sci-fi does really well. And um, uh, yeah, that's that's all I have to say, Willoughby. <laughs> Well, Mike, what do you have to add? Well, while HT was talking, I was Googling what is cerebral sci-fi because I pretty much (laughs) ran out of ideas to say. But honestly, I'm just going to be truthful. I think everyone hit the point is that with cerebral sci-fi, it cares as much about its ideas as it does, you know, with the explosions or the weird aliens. It's not weird for the sake of being weird. It has something important to say. Mm -hmm. Um it doesn't have to be grounded in that there are so many, you know, 
different rules of this particular universe or it's like trying to subvert like oh my god is this like a psychological trip or something like that i know a lot of people like myself included i was totally guilty of doing that with inception because i was like yeah no other sci-fi is as smart as that (laughs) but no it's sometimes it could be the most basic things like you know star trek is obviously recognize as some of the greatest works of science fiction, not only because it looks cool and has some amazing visually creative alien designs, but but what it has to say, you know, about interconnectivity, about peaceful exploration, about exploration in general, you know, the elevation of intelligence and scientific discovery. And just like thinking of like more recent science fiction, um, what I felt was, you know, one of the smartest, most beautiful pieces of science fiction footage that I've probably seen in the last five years. Now, hear me out, America. Valyrian in the City of a Thousand Planets. The opening five minutes almost brought a tear to my eye. There's no dialogue, but it shows, like, the history of space exploration initially in the 70s where we have the American astronauts and then we see the Russian cosmonauts. And then it imagines, you know, with the International Space Station, all the different countries sending their astronauts. We see the Chinese. And then eventually African nations start sending their uh astronauts into space but then over like the course of this montage we see them interacting with all these unique intergalactic alien races but it's never about you know oh my god we're fearful or this might precipitate war it's like scene after scene of just like exchanging friendly pleasantries while david bowie plays over (laughs) the scene and to me that is cerebral sci-fi it doesn't even say a single thing but it communicates something that's you know very optimistic very powerful and it looks freaky as hell because it's like (laughs) i mean it's luke besson i mean say what you will i mean valerian for the rest of the movie it's pretty dull but i mean god bless luke besson he puts so much thought into that production design but when you weave that in that he has something important to say in those opening five minutes for me that's like the pinnacle of Wow, that was great cerebral sci-fi! Yay! <laughs> I wanna, I wanna touch on a couple things you said, Mike. Okay, <laughs> I'm with you in HT. Like, cerebral sci-fi can be so much. My favorite is anything that presents humanity as hopeful, mm-hmm. because I am an eternal bleeding heart optimist forever and always to my dying days. Amen. Um, <laughs> so like Arrival, Star Trek, anything that promotes like the goodness of humanity and peace. Um, and intellect is, like, my favorite. But I also think the interesting thing about cerebral sci-fi specifically is that it can be so genre-bending, especially more than just, like, a straight sci-fi story. Like, um, Mike, you brought up Inception, and I will say I am also extremely guilty of what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, notori- I notoriously have a love-hate relationship with Chris Nolan. Um, but my favorite Chris Nolan film of all time, and for me, he has not topped this, is The Prestige. Oh, it's so good! So good. And for me, like, I feel like it's really easy to just be like, oh, it's a period film about magicians, and it came out the same year as The Illusionist, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, it's not like, it's not like Inception where, like, buildings are collapsing, it's not like Interstellar where it's actually, like, space travel. But for me, The Prestige is still a cerebral sci-fi film with its explorations of, like, cloning and what humanity means when it comes in contact with technology in that way. And, like, Tesla, ugh, David Bowie. Andy Circus. And Andy Circus, but, like, I just, my heart breaks when I think of David Bowie um, now. And so, like, that idea of, like, humanity kind of 
going to extremes that are horrific mm-hmm. um, is what I like about Cerebral Sci-Fi as well when it pushes that. Because, like, the prestige on its surface is just a period film. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's so much more lurking beneath the surface, and that's why I think it's Chris Nolan's best film. Oh, yeah. And still also a sci-fi film in a way. Yeah, like, it definitely starts out as, like, a period piece period piece between two magicians but then once the introduction of tesla comes in and you start seeing like shit he's doing with teleportation and mind transference like you like hugh jackman never knows if he's going to be the guy in the tank or the guy on stage like and then and then he plays with that with our expectations of who christian bale's character is and it's you know it's super layered and super like it's definitely one of his best movies and i think it's because he has a limited budget (laughs) I will say the book is even creepier. So if you oh, there's a one, book. There, it's based on a book, and I read I the book after I saw the movie. And the the ending of the book like kept me up at night. Like is I was so scared. Is it different than the than the movie ending? Um, sort of. There's okay. a lot more going on. Okay. Um, because it's mostly told from present day, looking back on Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale's characters. Oh, interesting. Um, but the ending is. Don't spoil anything. I, I didn't realize there was a book. I thought it was an original story. Mm-mm, it's based on a book. Cool. Um, I, w- I, I was just thinking about, you know, in my random spiel, I wanted to add us to like what also qualifies as cerebral sci fi. A good example, recent example of just a way of, I guess, reclaiming a sense of cultural identity is the science fiction deployed in Black Panther. Mm. Um, I forgot to listen to. The Black Panther episode on this podcast, wow. but wow. <laughs> sorry about that. But you know, uh, forgive me if I'm just repeating talking points. But you know, the whole Afro Afrofuturism. I cannot pronounce. I apologize. But I mean, the whole um, advance, you know, technology that you know defines Wakanda and how it speaks to an African nation that has never experienced colonialism. Um, that's like a really fun way of you leveraging, you know, high tech sci-fi to, um, in a way, I don't want to, I don't want to say like reaffirm like one's culture, but like give it like a sense of to reclaim it, reclaim it, give it like a better sense of imagination. Cause I remember like in the car ride coming over here, I was like fretting over, you know, what am I going to talk about on this weird podcast with HT? But I was thinking about, you know, People don't associate, you know, B-level Japanese mech films as, you know, cerebral sci-fi, but, you know, being East Asian, they do have, like, that kind of value because they really speak to that, you know, rapid technological advancement of East Asian cultures, especially, you know, post-World War II. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just watching, you know, mechs and how they, like, form as part of like a new cultural mythology in which so let's say pacific rim we see each mech is attached to like their own national identity like obviously it's incredibly pulpy it's not you know trying to say something intelligent about the human condition but in a way it's very linked to the human condition of you know shaping high science fiction technological concepts of being connected to one's culture, one's natural national identity. And yeah, that, that was my little shtick. Oh. <laughs> I cannot talk today. Shtick. Shtick. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting uh, thing to add because that makes me think a lot about that disparity between sort of cultural identity and a lot of sci-fi we see, a.k.a. cyberpunk, which takes a lot of the um, imagery that you see in East Asian cultures oh. and sort of co-ops it. To, <laughs> as window dressing. As window dressing and to create a sort of illusion of more globalized culture. And that's something where I think 
a lot of cerebral sci-fi or like a lot of sci-fi that's attempting to be cerebral kind of falls short because they take that shortcut, that visual shortcut, um, to imply a greater, more globalized uh, civilization. But right. they do it by using East Asian imagery without actually including any East Asians in it. But there is sort of some more cerebral. Um, science fiction that comes from Asia, uh, Japan, China, uh, Korea, for example, and but it comes a lot of the times in anime. We see that in Acura, we, or we see that in sort of pulpy B movies too, like Godzilla, which itself was a political. Um, yeah, yeah, it had a, its own political. Uh, like it's, it's a metaphor messaging. for the nuclear bomb ten exactly. years later. Exactly. So. Um, and it's interesting that that is not taken quite as seriously as the ones that are made by like white men. <laughs> but we I, don't grapple with our own history. Oops. <laughs> so I hope that there is more globalization in like the sci-fi <laughs> genre and like what uh, that we see reflected in what cerebral sci-fi is trying to um, sort of grasp. Can I weirdly add on to you know the refusal of Western white filmmakers not grappling with their checkered history? Mm-hmm. Um, the closest thing, because once you mentioned that, I thought of that kind of was trying to go for that. James Cameron's Avatar. Oh. Mike, did you have to go there? <laughs> it's science the fiction. There's a lot going Avatar. on. It is an attempt, an attempt, mind you, to, you know, critique Western colonialism in a way. Is it? Is it, though? I never said I it was successeful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. But it's the closest thing that I can think does... of. Yeah. <laughs> I believe at one point a character does reference the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. I believe. I could be putting that on. I could be projecting. But that movie. Oh, <laughs> Michelle boy. Rodriguez does uh, use the term shock and awe negatively as a reference to the Iraq War because James Cameron is so smart, guys. Can't you, you guys, <laughs> I can't wait for the next seven Avatar movies that come out in the next 50 years. It's going to be just, baller. There are, seven. Show that there are so many things that can be attempted in sci-fi, but not nearly all of them are successful. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing, because, like, okay, like, I know it's, like, easy to bang on James Cameron, but, I mean, he has his place in science fiction. I love Terminator 2. I love Aliens. And I do think that there is potential to make the avatar franchise into cerebral science nope. fiction as like if it had shut some, it down now if he had something important to say because i think deep down he kind of maybe slightly does he cares a lot about the environment no one's going to take that away from him and i know he talked about you know he really wants to explore you know preserving our natural ecosystem yes i have been reading up on avatar too mind you but it's like um does hit or miss? Well, I have a question for you guys. Where would you draw the line between what you would deem cerebral sci-fi versus not? <laughs> <laughs> like movies maybe that are attempting to hit that cerebral um, sort of um, that spot, but maybe fail. It's hard, it's hard to tell. I feel like I can't really point to specific films, but I can point to specific aspects. I feel like once, if the if the rules of the, of the universe are broken because the the filmmakers don't care enough to keep it consistent. I feel like that's when like the 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 possible cerebralness goes out the window when they start like initializing with ideas and then it goes and then they just don't follow through or even if they, you know, like the Michael Bay movies have a lot of weird things to say about like 
like aliens and extraterrestrial life and what the military would do when if they were faced with like you know 60 foot tall robots um but i think it's just window dressing for explosions you know like i feel like there's a i feel like it's when the sci-fi is superficial and it doesn't really affect us as humans that's a good point yeah i was just gonna lay into the transformers i mean obviously that's a great (laughs) example for why it's not cerebral sci-fi it's not even good sci-fi because it's just disgustingly nihilistic and it's incredibly uh fetishizing american militarism which takes away from its sci-fi value it's ashamed of being a sci-fi films and the guy's even ashamed of making these movies so that's all i'm going to say about why i don't count transformers but i'm going to pivot to like another mike has to like you know rant away on a sci-fi film Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, I do feel that there are some genuinely intelligent concepts that are communicated in the film, you know? I could kind of buy love is the most powerful, you know, metaphysical force in the universe. Maybe there is some intelligence behind the cosmic bookcase suspending well, reality. You know, <laughs> the thing about love is the most powerful metaphysical force is that Arrival did that too, and it did it so much better. It did it so much better. That's the thing is, the idea of an Interstellar are fine, but Christopher Nolan did not execute them well. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're also going to see those threads again in A Wrinkle in Time. Yes, that's true. Oh, yeah. And so, so, like, going back, like, excited for A Wrinkle in Time, but, like, going back to, like, Interstellar, like, I'm not going to say, like, it's a dumb movie, like, at all, but, like, where I draw the line between an effective cerebral sci-fi film and a quote-unquote smart sci-fi film that's pretty much using it to, like, make itself feel better is where it doesn't really deliver. Mm-hmm. On, yeah. like, those particular emotions or those thoughts that it's weaving in. I mean, with Interstellar, it was like, weird exposition like dialogue that's trying to aim at something but then i just totally lose track of it if i feel like i can't really process and think about you know what i just experienced and instead i'm going back and forth okay what the hell were they even talking about and what was Mm -hmm. its purpose that's where i feel like it loses like you know its intelligence because yeah now it's gobbledly gook. And I, mean, I think there's, there's, I think there's something to say about asking questions of like, what were the, what were the filmmakers trying? What was, what were their intentions? Like, I feel like criticizing or not criticizing, but even asking the questions, oh, what was, what does this mean? Is a valid question for, for, yeah. for good science, for good cerebral science fiction too. You know, because like, you know, there can be different interpretations. Like we saw for Annihilation, we can see, you know. Oh, you know what? What were their intentions with this character or with this concept of of or theme? And I do think that, th- like, there is a line to draw between like a well-executed cerebral science fiction film and one that just uses it as window dressing. Yeah. So, like, why should I care about the thoughts that you're trying to examine? Mm-hmm. I mean, that for me separates, you know, good cerebral smart sci-fi versus you're all over the place and I really don't care, but you're trying to pretend to be smart. Yeah. I mean, ironically, the ones, the movies that I see as successful cerebral sci-fi films are ones that evoke an emotional reaction from me, even though oh, yeah. that's something that you wouldn't associate with hard sci-fi, something that's so logical and so cold. But in the end. Cerebral sci-fi is something that's almost emotion first for me. Something that that deals with humanity and or compassion and or lack of, and I think that's why it's they are so effective because they follow through with those kind of ideas and live up to that sort of uh, that central theme of reflecting uh, humanity or the possibilities of humanity on the human condition it, essentially. 
HD, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. There's a film. I was so I was doing like some research on like what the internet thinks of the the you know the best science cerebral science fiction films, and uh, one movie came up a lot that we haven't talked about, and I think you would have some good th- things to say about it. Is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I was actually thinking about when I would, could bring that up. <laughs> which is your favorite movie? It's or my one favorite, of your favorite movie. Of, it's my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. So like, what do you? Ha- Let's let's talk about it. Yeah. Well, I think it is the epitome of emotion first because at its core it is a romance. It's a mm-hmm. really tragic love story and the sci-fi element that is brought in only helps to serve us serve that romance in the way that we see uh, the buildup of this love story and the way it all comes crashing down. And that's how I think that's why I think of sci- the best sci-fi as being uh, best cerebral sci-fi as being ones that Science supports the more emotional and the more central uh, messages and characters. So I think that uh, Eternal like Sunshine, rival. yeah, like Arrival, and Eternal, yeah, Eternal and Sunshine too, yeah. I wanna, I wanna double that point and apply it also to Spike Jones's her. Mm. Oh yeah, because her, her is how I feel about how HT feels about Eternal Sunshine. Like I really love her. It's in my top ten, easy. And that's I completely agree. HT like the emotional love storyline is supported by the technology and science in that film mm-hmm. but like the reason why it's elevated is because it's emotionally driven exactly all right so i think that's a good way to wrap our discussion Wait, i have one point oh. to bring full circle. <laughs> right. no i've been i've been holding on to this it's really quick because i wanted to end on it yeah let's not forget that science fiction was created by a woman and the very first piece of science fiction was also cerebral science fiction because True. nothing comments on the human condition and mortality like mary shelley's frankenstein yeah that's true and it's really interesting that mary shelley's frankenstein has the subtitle the modern prometheus because prometheus was a greek uh myth a greek myth um i think he was a titan i think yeah Yeah. he was a greek titan who is basically a symbol for human progress because he he's the one who brought fire to humanity and fire is you know a destructive force that we see a lot but at the same time it is a symbol for progress inventions everything that uh, has driven forward civilization so it's really interesting that it's prometheus is sort of like this double-edged sword of like you know if we go if we progress too far we have something that's like an abomination like frank frankenstein's monster but it, it can also be a symbol of hope in that if we progress enough then we can push forward humanity and civilization and become better and better ourselves yay that's the perfect way to end it all right <laughs> so let's move on to the last segment of our episode i really 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 like you but i need to tell you something Since you're our guest for this week, why don't you go first? What do you really like this week? Okay, so a bit of a context of my really like. I had just moved to Brooklyn, New York for a new job back in October. And so living in New York, you really want to immerse yourself in Broadway theater. I haven't really had that much experience, you know, actually seeing musicals or plays or anything like that. And so obviously, in a total mic move, one of my first musicals live was the SpongeBob SquarePants musical on Broadway. And... I just like picked it ironically because I thought the entire concept seems ridiculous and it is incredibly ridiculous but very entertaining. It is very surreal. 
there's a lot of political satire that goes on, especially regarding contemporary American politics, just FYI. But the production design, it's kind of both incredibly simplistic, like it's a tongue-in-cheek, wry sense of humor that they know that this is ridiculous, so we're going to give it a very small budget. But the performances, the singing is actually really great. Squidward has this Cronenberg level of body horror with his extra limbs that are literally attached to his butt while he walks. But he has the best musical number that's very reminiscent of Singing in the Rain, where he just tap dances with his four legs longest ovation of the night by the way what yeah there is a subplot that involves patrick star becoming a cult leader and it's hysterical but it's just so um i don't want to curse but it's so batshit um so over the top i had a great time i was also kind of drinking during it so that made things even better and they end with a pop punk cover of the spongebob theme song in which the entire audience sings along to because we all know the lyrics to that (laughs) (laughs) the hamilton of nickelodeon tv shows That sounds like a crazy performance, and I want to see it immediately. Yes. I want to, yeah. see, it. I want to see it so bad, because <laughs> I've heard really good things about it, and the soundtrack is great. It really so is I want to see it. solid, mm-hmm. I will say that. <laughs> but right. I just, I, I asked you this last night, Mike, but I have to ask again. Okay. Does Squidward ever dab at some point? Dab. <laughs> I can't say with certainty, but I'm pretty sure he did. Like, he definitely does, like, like, that's how he sounds. He sounds, like, nasally and goes, like, a lot of times. That is is Squidward. That is definitively Squidward. Um, Oh, my God. That is, of course, a reference to the vine, which Squidward dabs. Vine forever. Vine forever. Rip vine. Um, Yeah, that's wild. All right, Willoughby, why don't you go next? Um, In a completely opposite direction, uh, my really like is Smallville from the WB. I think I talked about this a couple of years ago when I first started watching it, but I fell behind and I'm picking it up again. And I've watched a season and a half since last week. And um because I binge like that. And I really like it. I really like I think I've talked about this before. I like how they do Clark Kent. He's a very genuine person. He cares for people. He is like grade A Superman, you know, none of this. I mean, he's obviously angsty because he's a teenager. But that's a different type of angst than when you're Henry Cavill, a 35-year-old man who is trying to brood by being the world's savior. But meanwhile, Clark Kent on Smallville is only like 16, 17 years old. He doesn't know he doesn't know his place in the world. He's almost he's allowed to angst. In fact, that's like a driving force. Is like his you know whole you know hiding my secret, you know letting people in on the on it, saving Smallville saving the world not yet but like save just you know a very minute hero uh very small but <laughs> um but i really like it um tom welling is an excellent clark kent slash superman uh i think he, he's underrated when it ter- when it comes in terms of like ranking superman um i think he's great uh michael rosenbaum is great as like Luthor. there's a part there's an episode where he's like it's like classic sci- uh star trek uh, trope where he's like he's like uh, separated into two versions: his good self and his evil self. And his evil self is essentially the Lex Luthor we know and hate, like the evil, like the true evil, crazy batshit, like psychopath. Um, and he d- he he performs it ex- excellently. Yeah, that's a word. Um, <laughs> and 
I'm only in season five now. I have five more seasons left. Cause <laughs> um, oh season my God. Show. But, so no, but knowing my track record of binging, I'll be done by Tuesday. Um, <laughs> and so I, th- I think it, you know, I really like it. It's, you know, it's pinnacled mid two thousands. It's super mid two thousands. And I love it because <laughs> they use all these songs that we, you know, we we've grown up with and kind of have almost an ironic liking for, but they use them super sincerely. And it's so funny. To me, at least. But it's also great. It's like, <laughs> if I watched that growing up, I would have been like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> so, Smallville. All right, Anya, what's you really like this week? So, this week, Janelle Monae released two new singles from her upcoming album. Yay! And mm-hmm. I cannot get enough of the second single she released, titled Make, uh, what was it, Make Me Feel? Yeah, Make Me Feel. Um, for a lot of reasons. A, it's just a really good, catchy song. I can't stop singing it. It sounds very much like Prince. And surprise, surprise, Prince worked on it before he passed away. He actually helped her work on this song. So there's a reason it sounds like Prince, um, which I love. I also just love Janelle Monae. I think she's wonderful. I think she is just an icon already. Um, And also it's a celebration of bisexuality. So I am so happy with tessa thompson with tessa thompson yeah yeah with janelle monet and you know the fact that it's like a positive celebration of bisexuality and like fluidity um means a lot to me personally but also it's just a jam like it is a certified bop and i'm so excited about that and i can't wait for the whole album to come out so janelle monet just keep killing it yeah <clears throat> All right, so my really like this week is vaguely pop culture related. It was a preview night for a bar, Papa Bar, that's opening in Washington uh, yeah. DC. <laughs> How hip! I know it was. Um, it's the cherry blossom themed bar that this Papa Bar that did the Game of Thrones and Stranger Things bar that went viral in DC. And, oh, the uh, cherry blossom! It's back. Yeah, it's back, and they That's went great. all out this year. So I expected, you know, lots of florals, some recreations of cherry blossom trees in there, which they did have. But when you go to the back, there is a whole room with a Godzilla uh, sort of. I don't want to say machine, like a big sort of recreation like of an Godzilla. Animatronic. animatronic, that's it. Yeah. Animatronic Godzilla. And um, every couple minutes, it will blow smoke and start roaring and stuff. And the room is pretty, is really excellent. It has uh, graffiti that sort of imitates that old 1950s style uh, mo- movie that first came out in, as well as a little, a tiny moth in like paper mache that's like floating from the ceiling. Mothra. Mothra. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It looks like a moth, but it is obviously Mothra. And and, uh, then there's another area of the bar that that recreates a Japanese alleyway bar that is exactly like the alleyway bars that I went to when I was in Tokyo. It's kind of amazing. Like they recreated the... um, the hanging exposed wires, the exact same signs that they have, the lanterns, everything, like the dinginess of it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Like whoever made that, designed that bar either went to Japan or did their research. So it's it was really fun, like especially posing next to the Godzilla because I was the only one posing next to it as opposed to people who were posing like in the floral room that was like Instagram ready. And here I was being like, <laughs> Godzilla, <laughs> So yeah, it was a lot of fun. And oh, there was also a wall that was entirely papered with manga. Uh, so it was, that was basically like my dream bar. 
and aka Olivia <laughs> Boo's Dream Bar. So it was it was a lot of fun, and I got to drink for free. And they had special novelty nice. cocktails there too, so it was a. Wait, how'd you get the drinking for free part? Oh, because it was a preview night for the press. So amazing. Yeah, exactly. That's this sounds a lot more intense than the version of the pop of the cherry blossom pop up bar that came out a couple years ago. Because uh, I think that the same company did it, but I feel like I only remember them talking about. Like the fa- I think they only had one bar at the time. I think now it's three bars. It's three I bars think, now. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. last year they did Mario. For... Last year they did Super Mario. Yeah, right. But the year before, I think they did Cherry Blossom. They did a Cherry Blossom bar. Yeah. Um, but this sounds much more intense. It's much more involved now that they, now that they have three bars instead of just the one. Yeah. But yeah, I think last year was Super Mario. But this, the, I think two years ago is a Cherry Blossom bar again. Yeah, and they had uh, the practice too with the Game of Thrones bar, so they just went mm-hmm. all out again, and they have like all the structures there too. So I think yeah, it was easy. To them cool. mm-hmm. i'm excited amazing. to go yeah my my girlfriend and her friends are going we're all going on like the 20th so like it's gonna be like knee deep in cherry blossom season yeah i think your girlfriend nice. will really like it because it's made for like oh yeah anime I, slash Josh, japan lovers. she saw she saw your pictures that you were taking and she commented on one of them going like she couldn't believe that a certain character was like on a bar and it was like all <laughs> clamp manga. it was clamp manga yeah, yeah. it was from wanuki from xxaholic Mm-hmm. Yeah. No so. one knows what I just said, <laughs> except for Anya. <laughs> I know Cardcaptor Sakura. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right. So That's that it. is our episode. If you guys have any thoughts on science fiction, cerebral sci-fi, or any of our really likes, the SpongeBob SquarePants musical, Smallville, <laughs> pop-up bars, or... What was mine? Wait, Anya, we didn't go. <laughs> Janelle Mona. Oh, yeah, no, wait, we did what? We, I, I was like, wait, did we miss Anya? No. <laughs> no, I like, totally forgot what mine was. You might just talk about it. Janelle. Or no. Janelle Monet. Babe alert. Come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud and also iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. So please do that there. And where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. You can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. And Mike, where can they find you on the Twitter? They can find me at msillingo91 on twitter.com. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.